for the next weeks and maybe even months is the question, what kind of king is King Jesus? What kind of king is King Jesus? And as we look at the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we begin to get uh, an idea of the kind of king that King Jesus is. And I will tell you that I believe King Jesus to be entirely different from every other king. Um, you know, there are occupational hazards in every occupation. And one of the occupational hazards for a pastor is the hazard of making Jesus a kind of product, you know, a kind of a commodity that you deal with and that you dispense week by week by week. And you work so hard to get it right. You work so hard to understand it and communicate it that it can become a kind of a professional activity. And I will tell you personally that one of the reasons I want to do what we're going to do is because I need to do this. It's very easy for me, and I think it's very easy for us, to lose our first love. To think of Christianity as a set of ideas or a theology to get right or a moral code to do right. But what is at the center of Christianity and what is at the center of the gospel is Jesus. And I want to be reintroduced to my first love. And I want us together to be reintroduced to our first love. So I want to ask you to pray over these weeks, and I want to ask you to pray for me and to pray for us, that Jesus would be more than an idea in our heads. Jesus would be our first love. And I'll, I'll even be so bold as to ask you that in the course of these next weeks, you'd bring friends, particularly friends who don't have any idea what this Jesus is about. And I'm not asking you to bring them because I want them to hear me. I'm asking you to bring them because I believe what I said at the beginning of the service, that Jesus himself comes to these meetings. And I so long for people to be introduced to this Jesus whom we see in the pages of the gospel. So pray and pray for me and pray for one another and pray for those who might come who might not really know the Jesus we want to look at. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, this wonderful, wonderful encounter between Jesus and this widow. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, 
and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, because you were in our midst, um, we can call upon you and ask you to help us uh, to come uh, and to accompany this handling of your word so that your word might encourage us, so that your word might speak to us, so that your word might have a power among us and within us, so that you might be praised, so that we might be changed. Come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, attend the preaching of your word to these ends. We ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There are three things that I'd like to observe in this passage. We're actually going to spend two weeks on it. Um, three things that emerge from this passage, among others, that I'll encourage you to uh, think with me about. We'll look at the first of them this week, and then we'll do our best to look at the last two of them next week. Um, three things that come out of this encounter between Jesus and this widow. The first of them is the pathos of Jesus. The pathos of Jesus. And then you see in this passage the power of Jesus. And then finally you see the purpose of Jesus. The pathos of Jesus, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus. The pathos this week, the power and the purpose next week. And as we deal with these three things, I'm going to slip another P into this alliteration. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to you that we also deal with the problems that keep us from believing and embracing what is set before us in this passage. Uh, so over the course of these two weeks, we'll look at problems to overcome in believing in this Jesus. But first, the pathos of Jesus. What is pathos? The word pathetic is in our vocabulary. It, it comes from this word Pathos. What is it when someone says something is pathetic? You know, it has sort of a, a negative connotation to it. When you say that something is pathetic, you, you kind of suggest with that word that it's something despicable or sort of reprehensible or something to be avoided or, or something like that. But the basic meaning of the word pathos, and you can look in a dictionary to get this basic meaning, the basic meaning of the word pathos describes something which arouses feelings in someone. When, when you see something and you experience particularly feelings of pity or sorrow, that is pathos. And that is what you see when you come to this passage, Luke chapter 7, and Jesus' encounter with, with this widow, and if, and if I can, doing things as we kind of tend to do in groups of three, if I can sort of dissect and pull apart the aspects of that pathos, let me suggest to you that there are three pieces to it. There is Jesus seeing, there is Jesus feeling, and there is Jesus acting, all of which are constituent elements of real pathos, of real compassion, of real mercy. 
That's what you see in Jesus. You see Jesus seeing something, feeling something, and then acting because of the thing that he feels, because of the thing that he sees. Look at this encounter. Jesus is traveling from Galilee to this town or this village called Nain. If you can sort of picture in your minds the map of uh, Palestine, the Sea of Galilee is up here and the Jordan River runs down to the Dead Sea and to the west is, is uh, the bulk of the Holy Land or Palestine. And Jesus is moving from the Sea of Galilee down to Nain, this little town in the tribal allotment of Issachar. He's been in Capernaum up on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee and he's moved some 35 or 40 miles on foot and he's moved down to this town, this village of Nain, probably inhabited by several hundred or maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred people. Now why is he going there? We don't know. There's nothing said about why he's going there. We don't know why he went there. We don't know why he left there. And we don't know where he went afterward. Isn't providence a wonderful thing? I mean, wouldn't you love to know why it was that several days before Jesus decided to go to Nain, a town Interestingly enough, which means pleasant, comes from a Hebrew word that means pleasant. The town name sounds like the Hebrew word pleasant. The name Naomi derives from the same word. Naomi's name was pleasant. Why is Jesus, isn't it lucky? Don't you love that? Isn't it lucky for this widow and her son that Jesus ended up at Nain, a town called Pleasant, but which just as was true for Naomi, who lost a husband and who lost two sons and who wanted to rename herself Mara, which means bitter, this pleasant place for this widow who then lost her son had become a place, not of pleasantness, but of bitterness. Isn't it lucky? <laughs> Isn't it lucky that Jesus stumbled into the village of Nain? We don't know why he went there. We don't know where he went after this. What we do know, and I suppose this is the first little bit of application that I want to encourage you with. What we do know is that Jesus got there because, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he only says and he only does what his Father tells him to say and asks him to do. And so Jesus being at Nain is not happenstance. It's not luck. It's not fortuitous. It is the wonderful, redeeming purpose of God for Jesus to approach this place of bitterness for this widow who has now lost her son. And so here you have Jesus approaching this town. And it's interesting, there are a couple of different words in this text that describe these two towns or these two groups. Uh, the the word that describes the group following Jesus is the word polis or great. 
it describes something fairly sizable. It's the, it's the word that's used to describe the group at the feeding of the 5,000. So it's a word that describes many hundreds, even thousands of people. The other word, the word that's translated considerable in the text, in verse 12, the group that comes out of the town or the village, describes a large group but smaller than Apollos. And so you have this one group that is fairly sizable, probably representing most of the inhabitants of the village because in those days when somebody died, everybody knew about it and everybody participated. Everybody came out late in the afternoon for the burial after the deceased's body had been prepared. And so virtually the whole village or town, several hundred people would have been making their way out through the village gate, through the city gate. And as they go out, Jesus is coming in. A group of thousands following Jesus, a group of hundreds following the widow. Sizable groups of people. And as these two groups converge, a great crowd and a considerable crowd, the first thing happens. Jesus sees the widow. That's what the text says. As he drew near to the gate, verse 12, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He saw her. He fixed his gaze upon her as these two groups approach one another. Jesus, the one around whom the one crowd is gathered, fixes his gaze upon the woman, the one around whom the other crowd is gathered. Now ask yourself, perhaps the obvious, what did Jesus see when he saw her? And this is... This is very important. What did he see? Well, he saw probably the obvious things. He saw the mother leading the procession. He saw the beer. He saw the container that held the body, different from a casket, something closed like what we would find in our day and time. He saw this beer being carried by the bearers of the beer. This beer would have been a woven Thing with the body prepared for burial inside. He, he would have seen that. And as they approached one another, these two groups, you can imagine that the group with Jesus would have stopped first and would have parted like the Red Sea, you know, uh, so that this funeral procession could pass between. Now, what you may not know is that Jesus also would have seen professional mourners, people who were hired from the local community, to lead the grieving crowd in its grief. That was customary at this time. Like human beings need help in expressing grief in the face of death. Well, they did that. They hired professionals. And Jesus would have seen those professional grievers. But Jesus would have seen more than we might see 
He sees the woman not only in her grief, not only bearing the weight of her loss, not only bearing the crushing load of doubt and fear. She is now a widow who has no male to care for her in a patriarchal culture where husbands and fathers were everything and were the providers and the protectors of women. And when you didn't have a male head, you were at risk. And so there's fear and doubt, a load of it for her. But there's even more. Things that some of you may be aware of, but some of you may not. There was an enormous stigma attached to this woman. And so in addition to the load of grief and the load of her loss and the crushing load of doubt and fear and uncertainty regarding the future, there is also guilt and shame that this woman feels. And here's why. And if you want a reference for this, a resource for this, you can check out Alfred Edersheim's The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Edersheim was a Jew who was converted to Christianity and produced a massive study of the cultural habits of Jews at the time of Jesus. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And Edersheim tells us that it was customary for women to lead the procession. And this mother would have led the procession of her dead son. This woman would have led the procession out of that village because it was believed that the woman's sin brought death into the world. It was her fault. It was her fault. Adam was right, wasn't he? Right? God... This woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. It's not my fault. It's her fault. Folks, that was woven into the fabric of the thinking of the people of the day. It was her fault. But beyond that, beyond bearing the load of responsibility, the burden of guilt, that brings sin and death into the world, it was further believed that the premature death of a child was punishment for specific sin. And so this, what does Jesus see? Jesus sees a woman who not only bears the burden of grief and loss and the added burden of responsibility for sin and death in the world, she bears the additional burden of responsibility for the presence of the death of her son, for specific sin that leads to that son's death, for the guilt and the shame associated with it. People would whisper. You know how people do. Right? You ever pass a homeless person along the side of the road? with a cardboard sign in his hand that says everybody needs help sometimes. And you whisper, maybe not to the person in the car with you, but you whisper to yourself. You know how people talk to themselves? We really are schizophrenic. You know how we talk to ourselves and we say, well, it must be something he did that resulted 
in this being ostracized and cut off from the rest of society. And you see how we kind of distance ourselves from people who have done something that has certain consequences which are punishments for those things that they've done. Don't we do that? That's what they would do. They would whisper to themselves. Oh, yes, they would come out. Maybe this is why they need needed professional grievers to help them grieve because they thought she deserved what she was getting and they needed some help from some professionals to lead them in pretentious grief as this woman bore her son's dead body out of the village. She's only getting what she deserved. That's what Jesus saw when he saw this woman. But I want you to see the second thing that you see in the text. Jesus not only sees her, verse 13, sees her bearing the burden of this guilt and shame and fear and doubt. He sees her not only bearing these things, his heart goes out to her. That's the way the NIV renders it. His heart goes out to her. He feels compassion for her, is what the text says. It's not, it's not exaggerating it. It is not too strong to say Jesus felt what she was feeling. He felt what she was feeling. I've shared with you in the past this article by B.B. Warfield entitled The Emotional Light of Our Lord. Let me just remind you of what is so arresting to me about the fact that B.B. Warfield, this brilliant Presbyterian theologian, Princeton Theological Seminary, the end of the 19th century, into the 20th century, by anybody's standard of measure, brilliant theologian, writes an article entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, in which he argues from the text of Scripture, from the gospel accounts, Again, we're asking the question, what kind of king is King Jesus? Warfield argues that the dominant emotion in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the dominant emotion is the emotion of compassion, pathos, feeling, the feelings of those whom he loved. It's interesting, again, what is so arresting about the fact that B.B. Warfield would write this article is that B.B. Warfield's wife from the first months of their marriage was bedridden through the course of their married life for the rest of her life. And most of his writing, most of his articles, most of his books were written not in a study, not in an ivory tower someplace, but at her bedside where he felt the need of a king who would feel his pain and his grief. And what an arresting thing, what a comforting thing, what a blessed thing it must have been for Warfield to have trod through the pages of Scripture and to have seen over and over and over again 
this phrase attributed to Jesus. He saw and he felt compassion. He saw and his heart went out. He saw and he grieved. That's what you see. You see Jesus in the pages of Scripture when confronted with grief and sorrow and the brokenness of human existence. You see him grieving, weeping, feeling the pain of our broken humanity. Whether with a leper, Mark chapter 2, or at the grave of Lazarus with Mary and Martha, or in Matthew chapter 9 as he looked at the crowds and saw the sheep without a shepherd, fleeced and flayed, he felt compassion for them. And then in the next chapter, chapter 10, in view of what Jesus had seen among the crowds, he says to the disciples, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Not notches on a belt. Not numbers on a membership roll. But sheep fleeced and flayed who need compassionate shepherd. No matter where you go, it is Jesus who is the one who sees and who feels the griefs, the sorrows, the fears of specific people. Read the earlier part of this chapter. A Roman centurion, a Gentile, a pagan, one hated by the Jews. Jesus sees the centurion and heals the centurion's servant. Or the verse, a verse just following this passage, verse 21, where Jesus cures many who are sick and lame and oppressed by demons and the blind, he sees, he sees. And he sees specific problems and specific griefs and specific sorrows and he feels the weight of that brokenness. And then there's this third thing. He doesn't just see, he doesn't just feel he sees, he feels, and he acts. And this is so very arresting. I hope you can hear the song of the gospel in this. I hope you can hear the music of the gospel in this, the sweetness of the gospel. When Jesus, see, look, at this is so critically important for you because I know, I know in this room hearts are breaking. I know in this room are people burdened with sorrows and sadnesses and griefs and doubts and fears and guilt and shame. And Jesus not only sees and feels, but he acts and when he acts, and I wish I could walk, and I probably can, but the tape wouldn't get it, so I'll stay here. He walks into the middle of the crowd. He doesn't speak at a distance. He doesn't remain at a distance, but he walks right into the midst of that funeral procession and he touches the beer. He touches the contaminated thing. He touches death. You understand again that in the minds of these folks, that was a very significant thing. 
People didn't do that, especially holy people. And they didn't because if you touch the dead thing, if you touch the contaminated thing, if you touch the unclean thing, you become unclean. You become contaminated. Jesus does not fear being contaminated with our contamination. Amen, praise the Lord. Jesus walks into the midst of the assembly. What do you do when you go to a funeral? We don't have these kinds of stigmatizations in our culture. We don't have this sort of thing. If you go to a funeral, if you go to a funeral service and the coffin is there at the front of the room and it's open and everyone processes as you go out, you don't fear being contaminated if you should give the hand in the coffin a little pat. But do you do it? Do you do it? You don't fear stigmatization. You don't fear being stigmatized. You don't fear becoming unclean. But death is death. And nobody wants to touch death except Jesus. Who will touch it. Who will embrace it. And who will overcome it. Who will overpower. You fear to touch the one who has died. There's something in us that withdraws, but not so with Jesus. Jesus steps forward and touches death, knowing that in the eyes of all of, the, all of these hundreds and thousands of people, there now will be two contaminated people. The mother of this son, and Jesus, the holy man, who becomes unholy by embracing what is unholy. Do you hear the music of the gospel in this? Do you see the cross set before you in this? Do you see the blessed work of Jesus in this? The one who comes into the world from his place of princely, glo princely, glo princely glory. Who takes our humanity to himself and who on the cross takes our death, our contamination, our uncleanness. He doesn't speak at it. He doesn't yell at it. He doesn't scream it out of existence. He takes it to himself. He embraces it. And he conquers it. So what kind of king is King Jesus? There is a huge, huge difference between Jesus and every other king. Jesus is the one repeatedly who sees. He sees the ravages of the fall in particular people. And he feels the pathos, the compassion, the brokenheartedness, the weight of the effects of those ravages. But he doesn't stay on his princely throne. He comes into our world to embrace, to act, to touch. All of that brokenness, all of that sin, all of that guilt, all of that death 
He comes to conquer it. That is the pathos of Jesus. He sees, he feels, and he acts. So I want to ask you where you are this morning. Look, you live in a fallen world. You live in a place of brokenness. I know we get dressed up on Sunday mornings. It's one of those subtle ways that we try to do what Adam and Eve did. We try to paste over the guilt. We try to paste over the shame. We try to cover over the ugliness. I've often imagined what would it be like every Sunday, week by week, if people would come to worship dressed in rags only to be robed in clean clothes in the course of a service so as to leave well-dressed. You live in a broken world. There is distress. There is brokenness. There is shame. There is contamination. But you see, what we have before us and what I want to remind you about is that we have a Jesus, a King, who really does see and who really does feel and who really does act. I don't know what it is for you this morning. Maybe you're in denial about it. Maybe, maybe you think that you can fix yourself. Maybe you think that there's some system of ideas that can change you, change the world around you. Maybe you think there's some philosophy of life or some moral code that if only you and others conform to would fix things. Maybe you're in denial. Maybe you're a, a Christian denier. Maybe you're not a Christian and a denier. But I want to ask you this. Can a set of ideas see? Can a set of ideas feel? Can a set of ideas act? Can a moral code see you? Can a moral code act? Can a moral code feel? No. It is a person who sees and who feels and who acts. And that is the person, Jesus. The same person, not a different one, the same person who saw this woman, who felt her grief, and who acted with power to destroy death. And it is that person who comes into the midst of this assembly and who says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is not me. It is Jesus, the person who stands before you and who invites you to come. Having stepped into this world and embraced death at the cross, he is now risen and reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he is present here by his Spirit. And so I encourage you. I encourage you to hear his invitation and come, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. But come to Jesus, this King, who is so very different. We're supposed to sing right now. But as I was thinking about this this morning, frankly, I, I just decided that it would be better 
if we didn't sing. It would be better if we were just quiet for a moment and heard this invitation of King Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me encourage you to be quiet before the Lord, hear that invitation, and again, perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the thousandth time, hear the invitation and call out to this king. And then we will come to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that words don't matter. They are not needed. It is simply the cry of the soul that you hear. The cry of the one who knows that he or she needs what you possess. Thank you that you see. Thank you that you feel. And thank you that you have acted to relieve our deepest distresses, our sin, our guilt, our shame, all of this brokenness. Lord, hear the cries of your people as they come to you, seeking relief. Would you grant that relief? Would you grant that rest? Would you grant that peace to hearts that need it? I ask that you might be praised in your name. Amen.